Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Danielle Williams from the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm about to speak to Arnold Zabel. He's a writer from Melbourne and his latest book is Violin Lessons. Hi, Arnold. Hi. Uh, first of all, just tell us a bit more about Violin Lessons. Well, it's a book of stories. My, last, my previous three books were novels and uh, this, this book uh, is a book of short stories, uh, although the longest one's 13,000 words long, so it's a bit longer than that, I guess. And... Um, and each one of them in a, is related to music in some way, but also they're woven together with common themes such as displacement, exile, uh, uh, and the other thing that links them uh, are the fact that uh, they all did take place, they're true stories, and uh, many of them took place in my travels over a period of 40 years. So there are stories that are set in uh, war-torn Saigon, where I happened to be at the height of the Vietnam War, there are stories set in Berlin and Nuremberg. There are stories set in Poland. There are stories set in Venice. And uh, also stories that harken back to places like Baghdad. So there's, <coughs> excuse me, there's quite a spectrum of stories that uh, cover a, a lot of time and space in a way. Mm. I was going to ask you about how you came across these stories, but obviously in your travels... So my question then is, why so long before you brought them together? What's, what's been the, the driver for it now? Well, in a way, uh, all my books, even the, the novels, works of fiction, have been uh, based on things that I've encountered, people I've encountered, uh, things that have happened to me, and, and, and through listening to other people's stories. And in a way, uh, it's always been there. For example, my previous book was the novel Sea of Many Returns, which uh, uh, is based on uh, going to the island of Ithaca, where my wife's family comes from, the island of Ithaca between Italy and Greece. Over a period of uh, 20 years, I, I go there every few years um, and uh, heard many, many stories. And there came a point when I wanted to encapsulate those stories in a novel so uh, I go back to Jewels and Ashes my very first book is a quest mm. for the missing link in the ancestral chain which takes me to Poland and Russia and Siberia and all those areas uh, you know I go back to uh, a previous collection the fig tree and there are stories set in various locations and so I guess travel's been so much a part of my life uh, and listening has been so much a part of my life. I always say that if you want to be a storyteller, you, you, you need to be a very, very much a listener first. Um, the, the music theme through Violin Lessons, was that accidental or was it part of all of these stories? Well, it's interesting because I, I wrote a couple of stories uh, 
and I noticed that there, there, there was some connection to music. I mean, the connection to music can be fairly oblique, and sometimes it's very direct. Um, for example, there's a story called The Chorus of Feet, which is set in Venice, which is really driven by the fact that one morning I woke up and I heard, I thought it was the pitter-patter of rain, but then when I went to the window, I realised it was just the sound of Venetians going to work. It's a carless city, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people going to work, and, and, and that rhythm drives the story, and it leads to an extraordinary encounter with a man who had a connection with the Venetian ghetto. Um, but uh, I noticed after writing a couple of those stories that, um, yeah, there was a musical link. So then I became more conscious of the fact. I, I started to, to, um, to weave them around stories or find a, a kind of a musical connection. I mean, I have to say that the musical connection, uh, like I said, they're, 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 they're quite diverse. And there's one moment, for example, in a story that's set in Vietnam um, at a time during, during the war when I went and, on a journalist visa but really as a traveller. And, um, and, and in this particular moment, after recounting a number of harrowing things that I encountered in, in Saigon, it's called the dust of life, which refers to the street kids of, of Saigon. Uh, at a certain point, I guess, I'm so overwhelmed, uh, I go out on the Mekong River with a fisherman who invited me to go out with him. This is in Phnom Penh. Mm. And I'm already out of Vietnam, and that was a relatively peaceful place at that time. Uh, before the killing field struck in such a horrific way. But, and, and there's a moment when we're out on the river and he takes out a bamboo flute and he begins to play a melody. He's laid out the nets, he's fed me uh, from his little stove, gas stove, and he begins to play a melody and that melody was totally and utterly in harmony with the movement of the water, with the movement of the river. Uh, and it took me beyond all I'd seen and heard and it gave me a point of re- a point of release and relief so it can act in that way too mm. but I guess the most powerful way that music plays out uh, if I had to choose the most powerful way it acts out it's in the, the ultimate story which is about um, an asylum seeker called uh, Amal Basri who survived the civics disaster by clinging to a corpse and this story was a harrowing one to write, but also a, a, a wonderful story to write. I'd always promised her to write a story, and she died in a cruel irony of cancer. And, uh, and she loved Um Kultum, the great Arabic diva. So as I was exploring her story, I began to explore Um Kultum, and it led me to an extraordinary place. I mean, Amal always wanted to be a singer, but it didn't pan out that way. But every Friday, when she was a child, the father used to walk her, walk with her along the banks of the Tigris, and he'd sing to her uh, the songs of Uncle Tum, who's a, a renowned Arabic uh, diva. Uh, and I did the research, and I went to a music store in Sydney Road where the new communities live, and um, uh, he told me that it's still she's still a best-selling art, artist and that, did you know, four million people came to her funeral. It was the largest gathering of human beings ever in one place, he claimed. And then he said, listen to the music. Now, I was struggling at, at that point in the story, and I was writing it already, uh, with, uh, I wanted to get Amal's voice right. She had an extraordinary way of telling stories. She was mesmerising as a storyteller, and she, she had a very rhythmic, poetic way, even even despite the language restrictions, speaking in English, which wasn't her native tongue. And um, 
and he said to me, listen to these CDs. So I began to listen to them as I drove around Melbourne. And he said, there's a, a concept in Arabic uh, uh, music which is called tarab. And you listen to the way the music builds up and up and up and it reaches this point. And, and, that, and you can hear it because the crowd goes crazy. And it's at that point is when the distinction between the performer and the audience disappears and they become one. And so I'm listening to this and I, and I could listen to the build-up and I could hear the rhythm of Amal Basri's storytelling. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she always wanted to become a singer, as I said, and here, here I am listening to someone who could tell a story, could mesmerise an audience of over 2,000 on one occasion at the Melbourne Town Hall with the story of how she survived by clinging to a corpse. But also she told very funny stories too. She was a great storyteller. And so, it, so, I be, so I, it, that became the rhythm of her voice and her storytelling. And I sent the story to people that had known her when I finished writing, and they said, yes, we can hear her. Right. You know, rather than have her speaking a broken English, which would have done a great injustice to her, uh, I, now f- I found another way of getting across her voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, another theme in all your books, and I guess especially in Violin Lessons, is the personal tra- tragedy and displacement, I guess, of, of people after you know hideous things in their home countries. Um, have you always set out to do that, or is that, again, something that came from your travels and personal experience? It's very interesting because um, I was formerly a lecturer in political science and anthropology. I had a very different career and I left it for all kinds of reasons uh, uh, but I guess deep down inside I felt that uh, I wanted to do something that eventually turned out to be uh, express myself through story and through writing uh, and through even just storytelling in itself and um, uh, but interestingly enough I went and I spent a year in China in 84, 85 and I came back and I thought this will be my very first book you know it was such an extraordinary time in 84 85 um, and I kept journals um, and I lived in a remote province so it was a wonderful year but a certain series of events occurred and it took me back to the story I had to write first which was the drama of my own family and my my mother for example uh, was very disturbed by the loss of her entire family in the Holocaust I grew up in a house of ghosts and absences and with her kind of rage uh, at what had happened and my father too had lost he was very different his responses were different but he'd lost his entire family so I had to go on this quest to find the missing link in the ancestral chain. And I guess, in a way, ever since then I've been on the same quest, but the quest has taken all kinds of uh, uh, kind of uh, um, variations on a, on a, on a theme. Uh, for example, as I said, in Sea of Many Returns, half the novel is set on the island of Ithaca, but it concerns the journeys of Ithacans to distant Australia and to the city of Melvurni and their struggles with uh, nostalgia, as they call it, the pain of longing for the return, um, the things they uh, uh, achieved here, extraordinary ventures they entered into. Um, and, 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 and that theme repeats itself in many of my stories. And I think it's only now that I've written seven books and I look back and I say, yes, um, these are the concerns that have driven me. And interestingly enough, one of the projects I'm doing now is a series of stories set in China. In a way, I've come full circle, um, and it's one of the things I'm working on. It's almost as if, well, maybe I'm getting to the point where I can 
break free. But on the other hand, um, uh, we're a nation of people who, apart from Indigenous people, come from elsewhere. And this is a great archetypal story of ours. And, um, and, and there is enough for a lifetime of work. Uh, and, and you learn a lot. And I, I, one of the things I've learned, and I mentioned this in a, a wonderful panel we did with on the immigrant experience, and uh, and uh, immigrant extra, it was called extraordinary journeys. And I was with some wonderful, uh, very courageous people: Majak Tulba, the Sudanese Australian writer, Karim Kushia from Iran, Pauline Wynn from uh, Vietnam, and and. And, 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 and I said, look, you know, when I look back on looking at these journeys and their human journeys, in a way, putting immigrant there, take away their, their journeys, we all go on journeys, but if you look at these, these journeys, you'll see there are three acts. There are many variations, but in a way there are three acts. And, and, and um, the act one is the time before. Once I had a village, once I had a city, once I had a community, even bushfire survivors have this three-part movement. And, and for various reasons, I lost it. For, I, I had to run, make a run for it. Uh, uh, it was too impoverished. Uh, there are many reasons why people leave. Um, and then there is the journey itself and the traumatic events associated with it, or maybe the horrific events that lead you to make the journey, whether it's you know the civil war in Sudan or whatever. And then, OK, so you come to the new world, we're a new world country. It doesn't end there, because the third act is the roller coaster of adjustment and 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 things such as nostalgia, what the Greeks call nostalgia, which literally means the pain of longing for the return. So many people I've known, even Amal Basri, the story that I write about her. At a certain point, I recreate the journey she used to do at night when she couldn't sleep. She would come in from the northern suburbs on a train to the city at midnight and she would descend the steps down to the Yarra River and sit. So I recreated that and sat late at night on the same bench she used to sit in beneath the Morton Bay Figs. And if you looked across the river, you saw a line of palm trees and it reminded her of the Tigris River and Baghdad yeah. and, the, and you know, her father walking with her every Friday and singing to her the songs of Umm Kulthum. So... Uh, so that th- there is enough there for a lifetime of exploration as a, as, as a storyteller. I just have a couple more quick questions. Um, because these stories are true, uh, I guess you must feel a fairly strong sense of responsibility to, I guess, represent them in the right way. Um, how, how, did you, how did you ensure that you did that in these stories? It's a good question. Um, if you look at the afterword... I say that in five of the ten stories, I changed events, I have composite uh, characters and situations. Uh, in a way, they are really on the boundary between fiction and non-fiction in a sense, and I, I, I needed to say that every, every specific thing is true in itself, but fiction actually comes from the word fictia, which means to make or to shape. That's what I actually... I mean, originally it didn't mean making up, it meant the way you told the story. So there are very various devices I use uh, uh, that uh, really are on the borderline, and I make that very explicit. I point out the stories where this is the case. In, in other stories, I change people's names. Uh, I only use names in stories where uh, 
I could I could tell the people I'm writing about you. How do you feel about it? And and it's another thing that I do is that I often show what I've written to the people I'm writing about, and what. It, I found again and again is that they actually, whether I'm writing it in fiction or non-fiction, they actually um, come back with something which uh, is far more powerful. People don't don't mind if the, if you if you depict them warts and all, as long as they feel there's a sense of uh, of fairness in, in what you're doing and a sense that they're sh- you're sharing the journey with them. But look, many of those stories happened on the road uh, quite a few years ago. And uh, these people have, have either passed away or, uh, you know, I've changed the name. Even then, I changed the names mm-hmm. because I feel an obligation to, in that in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I mean that's one of the reasons you write fiction. You know, that's one of the reasons why the previous three books were novels because Cafe Sheeras Art, Scraps of Heaven, uh, See Many Returns. I could. You know, once you you change the names and you change the situations, you were free. You were freed of that obligation, and I think you were able to tell, in some ways, a deeper story. You could explore, or you could dare to explore the interior life. Yeah. You know, put yourself in the shoes of different characters, and and that's what the glory of fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one final question: What would your advice be to new writers? Well, I'd say. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I mean, my answer would change at different times. But at the moment, I would say that you know that a story is really working when the story is leading you rather than you leading the story. Uh, what I mean to say is that um, the, the art is the art of beginning, right? You say, okay, I want, to, I want to do this. I've always wanted to write about this, right? We'll begin. But begin with a sense that I don't know where I'm going. Uh, begin with as a sense of exploration. I'm exploring something, and if you enter into it with that spirit, uh, there comes these wonderful moments where you take, ah, oh, right, uh, Um Kultum, the, the grand diva of Arabic music. Uh, who was she? So, oh, maybe I should explore that. Uh, so you've got to be open uh, to the things that come your way. I think. One of the reasons people struggle with story and why people struggle to the point of writer's block or whatever is because they, they, they haven't got that attitude of openness to where the story can lead them. It's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Arnold. Uh, enjoy the rest of the festival and good luck with the latest book. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Been listening to the team from the Australian Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online at writerscentre.com.au and discover details about our courses, seminars, and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories: The Eight Stories You Must Tell to Build an Epic Business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.